This episode of the Bendy Bodies podcast is brought to you by Bowerfine Premium Braces and Supports. Bowerfine promotes mobility and activity through pain relief and improved joint control. Hello, and welcome to Bendy Bodies. This is your host, Dr. Linda Bluestein, here with my guest co-host, Jennifer Milner, for another episode of this dance-specific series. Today, we are so fortunate to be chatting with former dancer, writer, and fundraiser, Kathleen McGuire-Gaines. Kathleen trained at the Pittsburgh Ballet Theater School, the San Francisco Ballet School, the School of American Ballet, and the Chautauqua Festival Program. Over the last 10 years, Kathleen has written more than 100 articles on dance for Dance Magazine, Point, Dance Spirit, and Dance Teacher Magazines. As a result, she has had the opportunity to conduct nearly 1,000 interviews with dancers, teachers, and dance medicine professionals. In 2014, she was named a contributing writer to Dance Magazine. Kathleen is also a dedicated nonprofit professional development coordinator and is a member of the development committee for the International Association of Dance Medicine and Science. Minding the Gap was founded as a reaction to the outpouring of support Kathleen received after she posted the article, Why Are We Still So Bad at Addressing Dancers' Mental Health on the Dance Magazine website in the summer of 2017. Her ambition is to enact a movement which results in mental health being regarded with the same seriousness as physical health in dance culture. She is also one of the millions of people who has battled depression. Kathleen, hello and welcome to Bendy Bodies. Hi, Linda. I'm thrilled to be here. Wonderful. And hello, Jennifer. Hello. <laughs> so great to have both of you here. Um, so Kathleen, you and I met at the uh, PAMA conference at UCLA last summer, the, the uh, Performing Arts Medicine Association. And I was so incredibly moved by your presentation. I thought this is somebody that I really want to get to know better. So it's so great to have this opportunity to learn more about the fabulous work that you're doing. And you started out as a dancer yourself. And at what point did you become aware of mental health problems in the dance world? Uh, you know, uh, much later. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I don't think it ever occurred to me to consider mental health issues as a dancer. I was dancing in, um, you know, late 90s, early aughts, I guess they're called, was when I was kind of at the, the top of my pre-professional training. And, you know, culture in general around mental health has changed quite a bit since then, and is beginning to change a little bit in the dance world. But, you know, I went through my first major depression when I was uh, 17 years old, um, following my first major injury, which was um, stress fracture to my second metatarsal. And, I didn't know that I was depressed, you know, like I didn't know that anything that I was feeling was anything other than weakness. Right. Like I, mm, I, thought, right. I thought, I thought that I just wasn't, I didn't have what it takes. Right. Like I wasn't mm. tough enough. Right. Like, um, and you know, there were people that actually kind of said that to me, you know, it was like, you're a beautiful dancer, but you know, you might not just, you might just not have what it takes mentally. Right. Mm. And so it didn't really occur to me, like, even when I stopped dancing, you know, I, I, people would ask, why did you stop dancing? And I, my, my answer continued to change kind of, right? Like, it was like, well, I was injured, which is true. You know, um, I'm tall, I'm five foot 10. That's a barrier. You know, mm -hmm. that's true. And then it kind of turned into, well, I'm, I'm 
I guess I just wasn't very happy. And then, you know, it probably wasn't until close to a decade after I stopped dancing, after all of these years of writing, that I started to realize that what I had experienced had a name, and that name is depression, and that it potentially could have been different. So I really came to the discovery of my own mental health journey through the process of writing. And I'll never forget Wendy Perrin, when she was the editor-in-chief of Dance Magazine, kept assigning me mental health-related articles. And I remember finally (laughs) asking her, (laughs) I was like, "Uh, Wendy, thanks for the work. This is great. Why do you keep asking me to write about mental health? And she said, well, you write it better than anybody else. And I I laughed hysterically. I was like, Wendy, I'm a train wreck. Like, I have no, no business. Um, you know, informing people on mental health. And she very, like, very deadpan was just like, well, maybe that's why you're so good at it, you know? And I think that's true. So so that was a meandering answer to your question, but (laughs) I figured it out much, much later. It was definitely in retrospect. That that's really fascinating. So none of the, I don't know how many healthcare professionals you would have encountered along the way, but um, I, I feel like as a healthcare professional myself, that's something that is very, very often missed. So, yeah. you know, you can have lots and lots of, um, you know, people coming into clinics for various different reasons and nobody asks the, generally the right questions to identify that kind of thing. And that's a huge part of the problem Absolutely. because this, yeah. And in your career as a pre-professional dancer, uh, you know, I think, I think you already kind of answered this question to some degree, but I would love to he- hear more about you know, mental health uh, sounds like it was not a big part of the conversation. What sort of unhealthy coping strategies did you see, if any? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the dance world is rife with poor coping strategies. I, am, <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I think that that's actually one of the biggest opportunities for the way that we adjust dance training is by encouraging and informing on correct coping strategies. So, I mean, what led to my injury to begin with was a pattern of disordered eating. I mean, I, uh, I didn't, I don't believe that I had a full blown eating disorder. Um, but I definitely had a very negative relationship with food and I definitely was not fueling my body properly or resting it properly or doing any of those things that all you talented, loving health professionals tell us to do. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and you know, I became, I became injured and being out, you know, I felt invisible, you know, I was completely separated from my identity as a dancer and my social group. And, you know, these are things that dancers right at this moment are, are feeling too. Yeah. And I, well, so I had the, the disordered eating was definitely a coping strategy because of, you know, the fear I had of being too big. And I think when you're a tall dancer, you know, I'm already five foot 10, like you can't be tall and big, like you're already told that you're heavy for the boys and stuff. And then, you know, after I got injured, I kind of went into this spiral. I mean, I definitely started uh, drinking. I started abusing drugs, anything I could do to feel happy and to eliminate the, the pain that I was feeling that I just couldn't really identify. You know, it's been said uh, that uh, addiction is, a solution to a problem you think you cannot solve. And I think that that is very accurate. And I actually think that um, drug abuse is a much bigger issue in the dance world than we discuss. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And mental health and, and drug abuse are so, uh, so linked. And so if we can do a better job with mental health, that will help us so much in making progress with uh, alcohol abuse, drug abuse, um, you know, any of, any of those, smoking, I mean, all of those things that, um, you know, if we, I, I feel like mental health is absolutely at the root of everything else. You know? Yeah, totally. And I mean, you know, the, the one thing that I think we accept and have accepted for a long time as a mental health issue is eating disorders. Although I still see that, you know, the, a nutritionist is called in and I'm like, where's the psychologist, right? Like, you know, this yes. is, mm-hmm. um, and you know, that's it, in the same way that it can impact um, addiction and drug use, it can also impact eating disorder rates to be more proactive in terms of the way that we are um, addressing the, the mindsets of dancers. And I mean, we know that dancers are at least three times more likely than the general population to uh, suffer an eating disorder. So it's a staggeringly high rate. You know, I distinctly remember, I believe it was in 1996 when um, Heidi, the core member with Boston Ballet, passed away from complications from her eating disorder. Mm, Um, I remember that too. Yeah. And, you know, I was in a summer program. um, And and to me, when I speak about mental health and dance, I often bring that moment up because to me, it was the first shift. After that, you started getting the like, all the boxes that get checked now, right? So like at mm-hmm. the summer program, there's the one hour session, with the nutritionist, you know, the, the session, like to the whole group. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Then sometimes there'll be the one hour session with a mental health professional. And those things didn't start until that happened. And unfortunately hasn't changed much since then. Mm-hmm. But if we can, if we can get to the root of things causing um, low self-esteem, perfectionism, depression, anxiety, if we can start to chip away at those, the reduction in eating disorders will surely follow. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you. And I think that dancers are drawn to dance for, for specific reasons. So I think people who are, if you're not a perfectionist, especially like if you think about ballet, you're probably not going to be drawn to ballet because mm. you're not going to enjoy the, the nitpicking <laughs> that people are going to do about your technique and everything. So I think that's very true. And then with people, you know, we know that more dancers are more hypermobile and we know that hypermobility and anxiety are very, very strongly linked. Mm-hmm. So it all kind of is, is uh, melded together. So, um, so once you, you'd become uh, one step removed and, you know, started interviewing dancers and teachers, um, was it easier at that point to, to start to see the extent of the problem in the dance world? Absolutely. When, when people ask me like kind of how I got here, I, I, my, uh, my kind of canned answer is by accident. (laughs) (laughs) Um, because it was completely by accident. When I quit dancing, I know I wanted nothing to do with dance. I had no desire to go see a dance performance to, um, I mean, zero desire in school for writing. I wanted to be a fiction major because I thought I wouldn't have to write about dance. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> how did that turn out yeah so um I think so I, I ultimately took in, in in the internship with dance magazine that led me to becoming a dance writer simply because I needed like a foot in the door right and I was like I can get this internship I can get published and then I can be a writer but once I was in that role and started interviewing 
dancers and uh, medical professionals, mental health professionals, directors, et cetera, I, I kind of went down the rabbit hole with it. You know, I, I became so aware of kind of the context of my own story and what I had dealt with. And then simultaneously realized how not alone I am in that experience. Um, sure. How, how resistant some leadership is to changing that experience or feeling that it is in any way their responsibility to do so. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the more dancers I talk to, you know, someone reaches out and said, says, I read this article you wrote and it, it felt like somebody understood me for the first time, you know, like mm -hmm. that is so motivating. Right. Um, oh, and yeah. so I just kept going and it, it, it continues to be that way. I, I, I can't imagine doing something else. Well, and you're, you're doing such, such great work. And I know that I was not alone when you, when you gave that uh, presentation that I, that I, when I first met you last summer, because boy, right after that, a lot of people, they were all talking about how, like you said, how moved they were and how the, the um, at the time you think that you are experiencing something that is, um, you know, not, not a common experience, but turns out to be more common that we just don't talk about it. Like, like we, like we need to. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, the, the article that I wrote in 2017, um, why are we still so bad at addressing dancers mental health, which I, you know, I shared my own story in that. Um, Jenny Stahl, the editor in chief of, of the magazine kind of gave me an open invitation to write an op-ed type piece about something I cared about. And that's what came out. Um, and it was terrifying and it took me three days to hit send because I was just like, am I really <laughs> going to do this? <laughs> but I've never regretted it. I've never regretted being honest and open about my experience um, and my challenges with my own mental health because it, it is so common. You know, this, this stigma we have in our head, it's like, this isn't, this isn't real. Like the majority of people will relate to you. Mm -hmm. And even if they can't personally relate, they love someone that can. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and along the way, you, you've also conducted some really amazing interviews. And I've, I've read some of the, you know, especially some of the recent things that you have done. What have you learned from speaking with experts in the field of mental health, especially as it pertains, you know, to dancers? Yeah, so many things. Um, I think some of the, the things I would consider major takeaways, like if I could go back and, you know, grab Katie McGuire at 16 by the shoulders, <laughs> like, <laughs> um, I, uh, I think one is um, goal setting. Dancers are frankly terrible at setting goals. <laughs> you know, my goal was to be in New York City Ballet, right? And here's the thing, like, th there's nothing about getting into New York City Ballet that is in my control, right? So I really, I really think an opportunity for dancers in the way that they're framing the things that they want to do um, and accomplish is to make sure that those goals are attached to things that they can actually control. Mm. Um, it's not productive to tie your goal and therefore your self-esteem to something that is not, um, that you have no power over. So it's, I, it's something that I definitely, uh, encourage dancers to do based on the conversations I've had with mental health professionals to really like name the goal, like say it out loud, write it down. And then like, 
think about that. Like, are, are there factors that are out of your control? I mean, it can be an aspiration. It can be a dream, but it can't be the measure of your accomplishment. And so I think that might be the kind of the biggest kind of takeaway that I get um, talking to them. But there are so many others. I mean, I'm just trying to think of. Well, and I think so much of, um, so much of dancers' mental health issues come back to control and that lack of control because just in general, we feel like there's so much that we do not have control over. So if we don't have control over whether or not we're going to get cast, we will control whether or not we're the skinniest person to be up for the job. You know, it's, it's that, that desire to have control over something that I think leads to a lot of issues uh, within dancers' mental health. And so recognizing that there are things you cannot control and then doing positive things about the things that you can control is such a healthy step to take. So I think that's a huge takeaway for you to have from speaking with the, the different experts throughout your, throughout your interviews, don't you? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and that is a thing you're right. Um, the, the control aspect and it, you know, it's deeply tied with the perfectionism we were just talking about. Right. And, you know, there was a research study done in Portugal on very, very young ballet dancers and they found that, and I think they were like between the ages of like six and nine, like they were very young. And what they found is that the young ballet dancers exhibited less psychological flexibility than their peers in music or in the de- general population. And I'm like, psychological inflexibility, like, oh my gosh, that was me. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, I think these, these qualities that make someone potentially an excellent dancer, right? Like the willingness to work that hard on trying to be as close to perfect as you possibly can are also things that makes a person at a higher risk for a mental health issue. Mm -hmm. Um, Oh, definitely. Yeah. Right. Like we need, we, we need to accept (laughs) that we need to accept that kind of reality. And I don't know, to me, it's like plain as day. Sometimes when I'm talking to uh, a leader in the dance field that, that kind of doesn't want to see this, I, I'm just kind of like, but it's right there. It's like black and white. It's, it's so obvious. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so um, you have gotten, as, we, as you said, some amazing responses to the, the articles that you've written, especially the one from 2017. And just the feedback that you have been receiving from all the dancers, um, is that what sort of led you to founding Minding the Gap? Yeah, I mean, so the, you know, that article, I mean, it went viral. It's one of the most read articles the magazine has published, um, I think still to this day. And yeah, and, and that was a stunning thing. Like, I will never forget the 48 hours after they posted it, watching social media and just like all of the comments and people sharing their experiences. And it was, it was kind of dumbfounding, you know, like, and what it did was it, it confirmed for me, like, yes, this is as serious as you think it is. Like, you're not, Mm -hmm. you're not being hysterical. You're not beating the dead horse of your experience, right? Like this is real. And then I also realized um, after that article, people started reaching out to me from all over the world, dancers, mental health professionals. And I, I was like, okay, 
I'm here. I am. I, I have a microphone. I have a little stage. Like people are listening to me. What next? I mean, I, I literally had people reaching out to me going, okay, we're with you. What do we do next? <laughs> and I was like, I guess I need to figure that out. <laughs> I don't know. I just wrote an article. <laughs> so that just blew you away that, that response. It, I mean, it did. And it was, you know, on the one hand, like so incredibly validating to feel mm -hmm. so like seen and to, to feel this like giant community of human beings that were like, I see you, I hear you, like I am you. And then it simultaneously just ripped my heart to pieces, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I, um, at the end of 2018, I, uh, I quit my full-time job and I started dedicating myself to Minding the Gap uh, full-time. And it's been an interesting journey. I, you know, going to the PAMA conference where I met you, Linda, and, you know, presenting in front of medical professionals. I mean, that was one of the scariest <laughs> moments of my life because, you know, I am not a medical professional, right? Like I'm an advocate, I'm a writer, I am a person with a lived experience. And to be accepted by the professional community in that way was incredible. And I see my role and, and I see Minding the Gap as essentially a platform for combining and um, collaborating on the good work that is happening, because I truly want there to be community around this effort, because, you know, it's going to take all the water to raise this ship. What a great so, analogy. Yeah. So I'm, I'm sitting here digesting this. Um, so I love that you're describing it as a platform for combining and, and sort of collaborating all the resources that are available there. So what made you come up with the name Minding the Gap? And what made you think, I'm going to create this? And, and, and what exactly does it do? I guess just tell us more about Minding the Gap. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, the name, uh, you know, I love um, being a writer. I love words and I love mm -hmm. the, the kind of multiple meanings of words. I love the word minding for obvious reasons um, that it references the mind. It references care, but also concern. And then, you know, there's, there's just a very clear gap. And, uh, you know, I came up with it and obviously thought of the London tube and was like, is this, is this a bad thing? And ultimately <laughs> I was like... <laughs> Ultimately, I was like, no, I mean, it's memorable. It's fine. You know, like, mm -hmm. whatever. <laughs> so really, at this point, right, right now, as I sit here, Minding the Gap, I would say, is an advocacy and research effort that I hope to transition into a platform of solutions. The advocacy portion of it is a lot of kind of what I've been doing intuitively for almost 10 years now. Um, and that is talking to anyone that will talk to me about dancers' mental health and trying to sway hearts and minds that either don't want to see this problem or don't feel it's their responsibility to address this problem. And then obviously the social media platforms, et cetera. The research side of it, uh, you know, I, I get frustrated sometimes when I'm speaking to someone who, who is resistant to kind of accepting this, how it, how, urgent this need is. Mm. And, you know, without data, you're, you're another person with an opinion, right? So there is, there is some data out there on dancers' mental health. There are some incredible researchers 
across the world that are that are dedicated to understanding these things. But you know, I, I find that there's some very basic statements I, I can't make. Like I can't tell you what the rate of depression is in dancers. I, I you know I can't tell you what the rate of anxiety is in dancers. So I started off really simply doing surveys. And after the, that initial article in 2017 that we've been talking about, the magazine actually allowed me to post a survey on their website. I, I co-wrote that survey with um, Dr. Brian Goonan. Um, he's a psychologist who is one of my collaborators. And we got almost 900 responses. Wow. Yeah. And really, like I was just, so the questions were things like, have you dealt with a mental health challenge in the last five years? 75% said yes, right? Wow. <laughs> Does your school or company have a psychologist or mental health professional that the dancers are referred to? 75% said no. <laughs> you know, like, you know, and it, it goes on and on. It's on my, on my website, weareminingthegap.org, if you want to look at it. And so I started kind of, I kind of started drilling down a little bit more into the seriousness of this and trying to kind of create the parameters of what the what, right? Like how serious, how big, how, you know, what is this experience? I've followed that up with another survey that I did, I think last winter. Um, and that one had I think, 350 responses. Um, and, and in that one, I was really interested in like, okay, what mental health topics or concerns are the most important to you, to the dancers? And, you know, it's interesting. I think most people would expect that eating disorders would be in the top three, but it wasn't. Their number one concern was um, self-esteem and confidence. Number two is depression and anxiety. And number three was uh, dealing with rejection. Interesting. So, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and what that tells me actually is that dancers are actually quite intuitive about their mm -hmm. needs. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think there's a dancer in the world that will claim that, that eating disorders aren't important or a problem. But all those things, right? So we're talking about self-esteem, depression, anxiety, and essentially coping, which is what you're doing when you're dealing with rejection. You know, those are the things, those are the, the, the seeds that can plant an eating disorder, right? Um, Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. And, and I was like, wow, like they get it without even knowing it, they collectively get it. And we mm -hmm. need to address those things. Mm -hmm. So that's, I mean, that's where it is right now. I have a, a for the last two years, I've been working on this grant to do a really extensive three-year longitudinal research study on dancers. And it, it was essentially, it was essentially funded and postponed indefinitely because of the COVID-19 crisis we're going through currently. And that absolutely makes sense. Like this is a mental health crisis that we're living through and right. that foundation needs to address that. Right. Like, so this is not the time for that right now. Right. So um, the research portion is is a little bit on hold at the moment, and I'm I'm pivoting again. I feel like entrepreneur life, I guess, is just <laughs> constant constant pivoting. Um, so actually, I I don't have the the date or time yet, but next week I am preparing to launch my first kind of direct interaction with dancers. I'm gonna start hosting 
what I'm considering uh, mental health, like education, public meetings, I guess, Mm -hmm. via like the Zoom platform where every two weeks I will moderate a discussion between a mental health professional and um, a well-known dancer. Um, And we're going to talk about what's happening right now. We're going to talk about this impossible situation dancers find themselves in. I mean, the entire dance dance world is collectively sitting at home with their foot in an ice bucket, essentially. Everybody's injured right now, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And, you know, and there are really serious implications for dancers' mental health. So I am looking at this loss of opportunity to consent, continue my research as the, the direction to me, what I'm receiving is okay. Like stop, stop talking about it. Like you've got to get out there and connect the dancers with the people that can help them. Absolutely. I would, I would totally agree with that. Um, what you said about dancers staying at home with their feet in the proverbial ice bucket is so true because Everyone, every single dancer out there is trying to deal with the loss of a contract or um, even just that, that comfort, that ritual of being in class every single day in the studio. And so even dancers who are normally pretty mentally healthy have to be struggling right now. And as these dancers try to sort of figure out the new normal of life in the time of coronavirus, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, it sounds like you're offering basically a, a mental health town hall meeting via zoom is that fair to say that's that's a good way to that's that's a good way to put it you know it's like it's so new and i have decided to do this like three days ago and now i'm doing it so (laughs) (laughs) i don't even know how to talk about it yet (laughs) but yeah that's a good way to describe it um the idea is that you know i would moderate this discussion um i think i can have up to a hundred um dancers like in the like audience if you will live and they'll be able to ask questions that i can Mm -hmm. moderate to the the guests so that we're addressing their real concerns Mm -hmm. um and then i'll you know i'll put it up on youtube i'll record it so it'll be on youtube or whatever so anyone can access it um can go back and watch it yeah and it's gonna i mean it's gonna be completely free like this is we just need to we need to help the dancers right now well, I, I can say personally, I, I think that's an extraordinary step. I think everybody's trying to figure out what to do and how to help. And I think that's going to be a huge thing. My guess is when the article came out, most of the feedback that you got was from the dancers, from the whole thank you for sort of putting a name on it and for sort of acknowledging that the emperor has no clothes on. Okay. Uh, and just kind of, you know, just finally being the one to say, hey, wait, why is this not being discussed? Everybody can see the guys naked why are we pretending the guy is dressed and that everybody's happy and healthy, right? (laughs) And it wasn't so much from the top of the artistic directors and the, um, the funding people that were saying, Oh, great. Thanks for bringing that up. We'll get right on Mm. it. Not that they don't care, but just that there was the relief from the bottom, Mm. from the ground that was coming with it. Uh, And I think in that same way, this conversation sitting around thing that you're going to have is going to be, hugely helpful for dancers because right now they all feel pretty alone. Mm -hmm. And so I love that this is going to be a way they can gather together and talk about it. Do you have any other strategies that have come to your attention with Mining the Gap or that you heard of for people who are feeling alone? Are there ways that they can address this in a healthy way that you know of? Sure. Um, So my, as soon as they started shelter in place, as soon as that started happening, especially, you know, here in the U S I emailed 
every mental health professional I know that works with dancers, which is actually like a, a lovely like body of people, you know, there, there are people out there. And I, I asked them that question. I was just like, what do they do? What do, what do we do? Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so I did put a blog up on uh, the Minding the Gap website um, spe with specific mental health advice from those professionals for dancers. And I think the analogy of, of thinking of this as a long-term injury is, is a helpful mm -hmm. one in mm -hmm. a way. You know, I, the thing I'm really worried about right now is this kind of fanatical online dance class thing that's going on. Like, <laughs> yes, <laughs> on the one hand, it's lovely, right? Like, it's great. Like, you know, Tyler Peck ballet class in the kitchen. Awesome. Right. <laughs> but I, what I worry about is that we have dancers all over the world right now taking four or five dance classes a day in their kitchen and working out and probably not eating enough because they are so, again, trying to control what they think they can control, right. mm -hmm. but doing it in a way that isn't healthy. And exercise addiction is a real thing. And it is very much comorbid with eating disorders as you both, I'm sure know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, you know, I'm, I'm really concerned about that. Like, I think I think dancers need to be kind to themselves. Like, yeah, you do need to keep moving. Like, you know, having, you know, the drop in endorphins that can happen from somebody who, who is so active, suddenly not being active at all is a, a mental health concern. Mm -hmm. But like, to me, this is the time to reconnect with why you're dancing in the first place, right? Yes. Like why I, I'll tell you why they're dancing. I mean, why did everybody start dancing? This is the most boring part of every interview I've ever done. So tell me a little bit about how you became a dancer. Well, when I was two or three, I was dancing around the kitchen and my mom was like, oh my God, she loves to dance. And she signed me up for dance. But I mean, it's the beginning of 95% of the stories of dancers. And I have a four-year-old daughter. So I watch it in real time, right? Like you started dancing because it was joyful. You started dancing because your body needed to move. You did it because it felt good and it made you happy, right? So now's the time to reconnect with that. Like, yes, keep moving. But like, do you have to have, you know, perfect Ronde de Jam on layer? You know, like, like, no, you don't. You know, put on Bruno Mars and shake your booty, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I really hope that, that dancers are trying to find a way to reconnect with that joyfulness and that, that kind of primal aspect of loving dance. Mm -hmm. um, I also hope very much that they are recognizing that if they're feeling really upset and sad and angry and all of those things about not being able to dance right now, that that's, that's a sign that, that you still love this, right? Like, yes, that's, that's the sign that like, you're on the right path, you're doing the right thing, because you miss it with your whole body and your whole heart, right? Yes. And maybe you don't miss it. Maybe you feel better. Maybe there was a situation you were in that wasn't good for you. You know, like mm -hmm. this is a reckoning and it can be very positive if we can frame it that way. Absolutely. And, and I think also just giving the dancers um, permission to grieve, you know, mm -hmm. most, most of my dancers are pre-professionals and they're, they're distraught over losing the summer intensive that they were going to go to or losing the chance at the contracts for next year that they were hoping to get into and these 
auditions that have all been canceled. And so there's this sense of, I don't know what's going to come next, but not necessarily feeling like not being able to recognize that it's grief that they're feeling and it's okay to grieve that and know it's Mm -hmm. not the end of their story, but the next chapter may not look like what they thought it would look like. And that's okay. Absolutely. Yes. And you know what, this actually going back to the big, the big lessons I've learned from mental health professionals, this reminds me of one of those. Um, And, and that is really that you have to love the process, right? Like, if you're a dancer because you want to go up on stage and be applauded all the time, like you're not going to have a great time. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, and I'm not trying to minimize the loss of, of those performances. It's devastating. Right. But the work that has been put into preparing for those performances is mm-hmm. still worthwhile and it still matters and it still exists. The tree fell in the woods, right? Like right. it did, right. you did it. And I think there's a lesson in that too, in, and loving the process and not the outcome. Absolutely. I think that's a great point to make. Um, So for these dancers who are struggling with these issues right now, which is pretty much all of them, um, are there resources out there available for people who need the help right now and how will they find them? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's an excellent question. You know, uh, yes, yes and no. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So, I mean, there, there definitely are, amazing organizations that have that have resources out there the the actors fund based in new york is amazing it's not just for actors you know it's Mm -hmm. definitely for for dancers as well um and they do have you know uh small grants and and funds that they give to dancers that are going through difficult times there's also um, the national coalition for arts preparedness and emergency response is an interesting website to look at. Depending on where you are, uh, you know, most, uh, I don't, I don't want to say all, but most um, insurance companies are waiving copays for mental health support right now. Oh, that's um, fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I have seen that. That's that is great. Yeah. So if you're lucky enough to, to have insurance, but no paycheck, like you can talk to a therapist for free, very likely right now. The other thing I I like to remind um, dancers of is that, you know, mental health professionals, I think, I don't want to say all of them, but most of them do work on a sliding scale. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, they do have like an ethical requirement to support people that need support. And, you know, it is always worth it to reach out and say like, I'm really struggling and I need support, but this is my situation, right? Um, so I think that's important. Um, I think it's very important for people to look up the, uh, you know, the, the crisis lines in their area. The National Suicide Prevention Hotline is 1-800-273-8255. Um, most places do have uh, more local resources available too. And honestly, I keep those phone numbers in my phone. And sure, it's partially if if I were to be in a crisis, I have it. But I keep it even more for the situation where someone I care about is in crisis. You know, it's a really scary thing to be speaking with someone you love and to hear their distress and to not know what to do. And having a phone number is a really, you know, really helpful thing in that moment to be able to share it with them quickly 
and actually like there's something too about I was talking to one of the mental health professionals I collaborate with there's something really powerful too about we being like hey I keep this phone number in my phone like I'm going to send it to you because it normalizes it right like mm-hmm. I have this in my phone because I see this as a valid and important thing for me to have in my phone so you know it's hard for me to give a blanket response to the resources that are out there because it does depend quite a bit on where you are and what state you're in. Sure. But there, you know, there's all kinds of ways to, to get online mental health right now. Yes, I, I agree. Thank you for that. Uh, and, and I know, and, and, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I love the idea of, of putting the phone number on your phone. I've never heard that before. I've never thought mm-hmm. about that before, but mm-hmm. it's one of those things where, like you said, it normalizes it. And then when you need it, it's one less barrier, one less step to having to, you know, look it up. If you need it for yourself, if you need it for somebody that you love, um, I, I'm, I'm seriously going to do that as soon as we, as soon as we um, are done with this call. I'm going to put that number in my phone. I think that's a great idea. It's a yeah. simple thing that we can all do. Yeah. yeah. The, and that normalizes it as well. Yeah. I love that. I know we are, um, I know we're just trying to get through this one day at a time right now and everybody's trying to figure out what this all looks like. And I, I know that Minding the Gap was not started with the whole coronavirus thing <laughs> in mind, but it certainly is helpful that it's already in place. And I know that it needs support uh, now. And I love that you have so quickly tried to transition to how can this help in this situation with the, the town hall meetings that you're going to be doing. Um, are there other projects that you're working on? I know that the research grants on an indefinite hold is this where you're trying to shape it towards? Um, what else are you hoping for for the future? Yeah, so the idea behind the research really is that um, one, we would follow um, a body of 150 dancers for three years. We would start with kind of a baseline of their mental health, measuring the things that I just desperately want measurements for. <laughs> like. <laughs> Like, like depression and anxiety and self-esteem. You know, I have three psychologists that I'll be collaborating with in this research. You know, I am not, I am not a PhD. <laughs> and, you know, then over the course of those, the next three years, we would implement a mental health program that by the end of the, the three-year period would rival the physical health resources available to the dancers. Mm. Um, so by the end of three years in the same way that you can, you know, go into a free physical therapy evaluation with a PT at a major school or company, you know, I think you should be able to do the same with a mental health professional. And then, you know, it really starts with, um, working with the teachers and kind of unpacking some of the baggage of, you know, hundreds of years of, of dance training that's been done a certain way. You know, I think that there are, most teachers are wonderful human beings that adore their students and want to care for them. And they may not even realize sometimes that their approach is um, negative and potentially even abusive because that approach was normalized for them as a dancer. Right. Um, so we've got to unpack some baggage here, right? Like we've got to, we've got to deal with that. Definitely. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah. I've had I've had several teachers say, "Oh, I I disagree. I mean, this is the way I was treated when I was a kid and, you know, it's fine. I mean, it's just part of the history." And if and they're not bad people and they're and they would never speak to the kids in such a way outside of that setting, you know? And that's the thing that they just have a hard time seeing 
it's not okay just because it's in ballet and just because it's been handed down for 200 years that you yell at the dancers and tell them they're fat and make them feel bad about themselves. Yeah. It's no, it's, it's absolutely not okay. Like it's like, it's, it's so the opposite of, of okay. And I have that same conversation all the time and I just want to pull my hair out. Like, I'm like, wait, wait. So you were treated badly and that made you, you believe that made you a better dancer. Like it just, it does not compute. Right. (laughs) Right. Um, you know, shame is a terrible motivator. This is something we know science proves it, right? Mm -hmm. Like shame is not a good motivator. It's in that, and dance, I feel like just relies on it so heavily in training so often, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm totally with you there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, well, I love that idea. I hope that in three years we do see, uh, mental health resources that equal the physical health resources available to dancers. It's been an exciting, um, I don't know, 10 to 15 years. I think for me, watching the dancers' physical health resources become so much more available. Mm-hmm. Um, just over the past, I, I think just over the past 10 to 15 years, it's really grown to go from just a few select top national companies to it's commonly talked about and every summer intensive offers Pilates and has PT on hand, at least sporadically. And, and it, so it's trickling down. And I would love to see that sort of thing happen again, have another revolution in the mental health arena and have it trickle down and become so commonplace. There's a sports psychologist to talk to you if you're stressed out about YAGP. There's a counselor to talk to, like being able to help the dancers and and direct them where they need to go and make it be, as you said, completely normalized. Yeah. I mean, and that really is the goal. I mean, the the idea of the, of the research is that over, over the course of that time, we'll continue to measure and hopefully kind of see if we can make a difference and kind of ground truth what we believe are the interventions Mm -hmm. that will help dancers. So how do we build this program? Like, how do we implement it in a way that the dancers will use it? Right. Like you can't just plop a psychologist in the middle of a dance studio and they're going to go talk to them. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, it's a culture shift, right? So Mm -hmm. like, how do we work within a dance institution to create that shift and to do it successfully? And the idea is that after we're, after we've done that and learned all the lessons and hit all the walls and <laughs> had our, our successes that we can then take those kind of ground truth efforts, other places to places that, that want that kind of change for their dancers, for their institution. So, you know, that's kind of the long term when I say we're working toward the solutions, um, you know, these are delicate things. Um, this is a, a difficult nut to crack. And so it's like, if you don't go in there with, you know, a surgical scalpel, like you can't just go in there hacking around, you know, um, you got to do it the right way. Mm-hmm. I think, I think another, as you're, as you're describing this, Kathleen, another thing that I'm thinking about when I am seeing a patient who often comes in and they have a lot of anxiety and I often will look at, usually it's mom that brings them in. And oftentimes mom has a a tremendous amount of anxiety as well. Mm. And, you know, I think it's even much more important for mental health because of the fact that, you know, once, once the um, tide starts to to turn, I think it will um, be almost, you know, kind of contagious that, uh, you know, help healthier, mentally healthier dancers in, in groups are going to actually be able to impact each other and they'll be able to, you know, really, I think it will, once it gets even more, um, 
you know, uh, once this movement really is more in process, I think it will be a really fantastic thing. Yes. Yeah. And, and I can't wait to see it become the new normal. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate, oh, so go ahead. What were you going to say? Oh, no, I was just going to say my, my goal is to become completely irrelevant. <laughs> <laughs> that is a fantastic goal is to try to work yourself out of a job. I love that. Yep. That's, a, that's yep. a great goal to have in this, in this field. I really appreciate all that you have done and all that you are trying to do and the, and the clarity of your vision. Um, is there anything else that you would like to share about what you're doing? And can you please make sure people know where they can find you? Sure. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I think, I think for now, uh, that's in terms of what I've got cooking, um, you know, keep on the lookout for these t- public town halls. Thank you for helping me with the branding of that. <laughs> um, <laughs> And uh, the website is uh, org. I, you know, there's a blog there. There's a resources page. Um, I guess I should have mentioned that when you asked about resources. <laughs> um, <laughs> and actually, you know, on that resources page, um, you know, you'll find websites and phone numbers and all kinds of stuff. Um, I also have a, a catalog of articles that I've written on related topics um, there in case they are helpful. You know, I'm on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all those places. Um, and I'm definitely grateful um, to anyone that's willing to follow along with me in this journey. And, you know, feel free to reach out. You know, I can reach me through the website very easily. I love talking to people about this stuff. You know, this is this is my passion. I spend a lot of time worrying about dancers, and I'm I'm deeply concerned right now. Um, so we're gonna do everything we can um, to support them, and hopefully someday I'll get to get back to hugging them. <laughs> <laughs> Amen to that. Where specifically do people sign up for this town hall? Because I I want to spread the word about that too. That sounds great. Totally. Yeah. So I'm, I'm confirming the time right now. My first two guests, one is in Texas and one is in Belgium. <laughs> so <laughs> we're, uh, we're working on uh, the, the time for it. And as soon as I have the time confirmed, um, I'm going to put out probably like an event right link so that people can reserve kind of a, the spot because, you know, the Zoom meeting can only handle so many spots. Right. Um, but I will start blasting it out on social media as soon as I have that ready. And then also it'll be uh, linked on the website. So excellent. Another reason to be following you on social media. Right. Yes, and, please. And, <laughs> and yes, yes. And I want to point out one thing too, because having been involved in one of these, you know, Zoom things capped at 100 people, one thing that I want to point out to people is that you absolutely register. But if you register and the meeting starts at a certain time, it's, it's kind of first come first serve. So if, yeah. if 100 people enter the meeting, and you're 101, um, and you had signed up in advance, but you didn't, enter the meeting, you know, right when it started or whatever, um, you might not be able to get in. So um, I just want to mention that, that, um, you know, with the, with those caps that that doesn't guarantee, I mean, unless you have a different system, Kathleen, I apologize. I should maybe ask you if that, no, no. And that's my understanding about how those work usually. No, that that's, that's great. Um, something I hadn't quite thought about. I, I'm, I hope everyone that comes to the first one will be gentle with me. <laughs> flat on my face. Well, um, I, that's why I'm, that's why I'm mentioning it because I yeah. have been involved in these and I've seen some really upset people because they really wanted to, to do it. So um, yeah. this is a fantastic thing that, that, that you're doing. And as you mentioned, it's going to be available afterwards, but if you want to be one of the people who 
who's actually there live and be able to ask questions and that kind of thing, right? Because there's going to be yeah. an interactive component. Is yeah. that correct? Okay. Yeah. To the best of my ability, you know, it'll depend on on the questions coming in, but I sure. do uh, have an ambition that if the questions can't be answered, you know, during the meeting that I will do my best to gather those and, you know, put them on the blog or something with answers. So we'll see. Mm -hmm. Fabulous. And, and everybody just needs to have grace towards everyone as far as social media and internet yes. savvy goes right now, because we're all learning Zoom at an exponentially high rate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, absolutely. That's just the way it goes. Yes. Well, I am so grateful that you joined us today. Um, you have been listening to Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD, and our guest has been Kathleen Gaines, former dancer, writer, and fundraiser, and founder of Minding the Gap. Kathleen, it has been so fabulous having you here, and we are so grateful. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you both. This was uh, a lovely, a lovely diversion today. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're so excited about what you're doing and um, so excited to be able to share this information with people. Yes. Thank you, Linda. Absolutely. Please go to bendybodies.org for links to all the episodes and to access the show notes. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share, leave a review, and consider rating us five stars. Don't forget to subscribe so you will be notified of all new episodes. Feedback is greatly appreciated and can be emailed to bendybodiespodcast at gmail.com. Go to hypermobilitymd.com to sign up for my newsletter. My guest co-host, Jennifer Milner, can be reached at jennifer at jennifer-milner.com. That's M-I-L-N-E-R. Thank you to Rhett Gill for production and sound editing, to Andrew Savino for composing our original music, and to Jennifer Arsenault for designing the Bendy Bodies website and cover artwork. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice. Please see your own medical team prior to making any changes to your health care. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time on Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD. This episode of the Bendy Bodies podcast was brought to you by Bauerfine Premium Braces and Supports, designed to provide joint stability and pain relief.